0: Previously on House of Phantods, the FBI pays a visit with questions for Simone, and Cassandra begins to consider the possibility that the greatest evil that ever existed may actually be one of the good guys. I regret Not asking Agent Doppelganger his opinion on the difference between hexagon and hexagram. Or why he thinks I keep stumbling over hexes altogether. Because lately, the word hex has been stuck in my head like an earworm I can't get rid of. Installing the new gas pump in the bus gave us time to discuss the who and the what of our travel plans. Constructing a plausible excuse for transporting two minor girls across not one, but two state lines is never easy. Especially when the transport vehicle is a bus from which an escort service operates. But hey, nobody ever said high strangeness only relates to the paranormal. As it turns out, Wallace had been invited to a youth poetry slam competition in Seattle which Betty and Emery were fine with. Betty's got an uncle on staff at the U of W's creative writing program, and she was hoping he might encourage Wallace to go there. After all, Jack London's daughter had once taught there. And curiously, it just so happens our psychic finder, Simone, has been asked to give a talk in their parapsychology department on using psychic finding skills. To film the invisible. The five of us had a long drive ahead. It gave us plenty of time to ask and answer questions we didn't even know we had until we all came together. There was a synergy to the way the questions kept building one on top of the other, like what it was that brought us together in the first place, the shared dreams. Especially the precog ones, the similarities in our backstories, the odd synchronicities. And then there were the questions about my little slip down the rabbit hole, like, What was up with the wormwood thing? We discussed our thoughts on why my transition from this dimension to that alternate one was laced with the bitterness wormwood is associated with, especially why that sensation was so seductive. Marina has the most illuminating perspective on that. She says bitterness is a spell we're put under to make us more easily controlled. It's quite possible that it was Cthulhu who induced it when he transported me from this dimension to the alternate one. So, it's like a hex, right? We're less likely to fight a thing when immersed in bitterness. It's about poisoning the self with a toxin that weakens our strength, hence its seductiveness. Intoxicants make us easier to seduce. Ask anyone who's woken up in the morning after a night of drinking absinthe, which Wormwood is famous for, only to find themselves with someone they wouldn't ordinarily give the time of day to. I rest my case. When on a 10-hour ride in a rolling Faraday cage, playing online video games or catching up on who's rage-tweeting about the importance of emotional regulation is out of the question. Not that any of us are tools who would actually do either. Also, there's no GPS. But then again, Who needs GPS when you've got a psychic finder on board? On the plus side, we had complete freedom to explore our collective experiences and revealing backstories without anyone overhearing. And believe me, there are experiences any child in the foster care system endures that she knows better than to broadcast. All too often, the child is blamed for the fate that befalls her when her guardians are out of the picture, and she learns at an early age to just keep it to herself. For the first time since returning to my home dimension, I felt able to openly share the details about my trip with my tentacled guide down the yellow brick road which led to a refresher course in Greek mythology from Wallace as she introduced us all to the muses. Turns out the one I saw weeping about wanting to go over the rainbow was Terpsichore, the muse of song and dance in theater. Was I being shown how far back the tradition of influencing civilization goes by inserting sound and vision directly into the cerebral cortex? So why would someone with that track record of influence flip the script and program people to commit mass murder? Once again, we found ourselves asking the same question that had been rattling around my head since my fall down the rabbit hole. Why would an entity known for being the greatest evil ever go out of its way to show us the finer points of its godlike powers? From the driver's seat, Abuela Paladin's voice called out. What she had to say chilled me to the bone. Self-preservation, she said. If the increase in parasitic dark energy entities, especially the free-floating ones, is an indication, there's someone trying to enslave the old god, use him for their own sick agenda. And they're doing it by controlling his food supply, which would make Cthulhu a sympathetic character here. The problem is, the overproduction of dark energy is ripping apart the membrane between dimensions. Who would do a thing like that? Wouldn't it mean the end of existence itself? Is that why I intuited the hexagon lock? It's how they're patching up the spots that are already too thin to hold. What kind of idiot would purposely bring about the end of existence? Do they know something we don't about the availability of another one they plan to sell timeshares to? Would we find anything to explain it up by Mount Rainier? Marina had some information in mind that she had a hunch we should know about before we arrived at our destination. The rest of us had a hunch she was right. Amid the vast collection of books on board the Abuela Express, there was a slim volume detailing the bloody history of the Puget Sound War. None of us saw any point in asking why we'd never heard of it. We had far too many other questions. Did the battles that took place where we were headed have anything to do with the house we were visiting being haunted? How about the murder of Mount Rainier's original name, Tahoma? Just how determined were the colonizers to wipe out all evidence of the native inhabitants of the region? Determined enough to pretend the mountain was actually created by the colonizers? Admiral Rainier had to have had a reason for erecting a mountain in his name once he marched 4,000 natives to Fox Island, America's first concentration camp. Thousands of them died there of exposure and starvation. Why would anyone do that to a peaceful people who had no history of warfare? I guess those reasons are lost to a history that's only now being taught in code at one of the many Indian gaming casinos littering the region. We had passed Tacoma before deciding we'd had enough roasted pumpkin seeds and rice crackers to prove to ourselves there really is no substitute for a decent meal. As we turned east from I-5, we began seeing evidence of the many rivers, streams, creeks, and lakes the region is known for. It reminds us all of Humboldt County's watershed connecting everything to the ocean. As we slid into a booth for some real food at the Green River Diner just outside Tuckwilla, Simone asked a question that had been bugging her. Can the level of corruption that leads to the kind of carnage seen in a greedy land grab result in the type of haunting her ghostly correspondent detailed? Of course, the answer was yes. The concentration of dark energy produced by the chaos of battle has much the same caustic effect as fluorocarbons have on Earth's ozone. Only unlike burning a hole that lets too much ultraviolet radiation from the sun come through, dark energy burns a hole in the membrane between dimensions, allowing entities to come through. Which could mean the house we're on our way to is haunted by any manner of them. What we call ghosts, for instance, may be little more than residual energy for beings from alternate dimensions on vastly different timelines, or escaped convicts from some prison dimension. Hey, I can speculate, can't I? And then there's the parasitic entities that collect dark energy, the ones the religious order likes to call demons. So what you're saying is that region could very well be a paranormal hotspot, Wallace said created by the murderous acts of greedy colonizers who just wanted to take what they could grab and justify it by calling their victims savages. That shit's harsh. As Abuela Paladin launched into a story about the Tacoma Narrows Bridge collapsing in a windstorm back in 42, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. At first I thought it was because of the corruption that led to the people of Tacoma having to foot the bill for rebuilding the bridge, since the insurance policy the city bought for the bridge turned out to be fraudulent. Grifters love corruption like flies on shit, and where it's been produced in abundance, you will find the human parasites being the tools they are by continuing the production of dark energy. But that wasn't what was triggering my spidey sense. I scanned the room and recognized two men sitting across the restaurant. Agents 1 and 2 had arrived. How else were they going to find out what we were up to? With no way to listen in on our conversations, the CIA agents had to resort to analog surveillance. But in the booth across from them was another face that did far more than annoy me. It struck fear in me. It was a face I recognized from not just a dream, but another diner, much like this one. It was her. Who's your daemon waving at? Marina's voice was hard to make out over the sound of my heart pounding in my ears. Even this ringing isn't drowning it out. Apparently, I wasn't the only one to recognize the woman. My Damon did, too. And according to Marina, they seemed like old friends. We didn't so much see the agents follow us after we left the restaurant as we felt it. Well, Marina felt it and gave us a blow-by-blow account. With a little help from my daemon, whose animated dance on top of my head proved to be a type of demon sign language she quickly picked up. If her translation is correct, the men tailing us are being tailed by the Dagon. And from experience, that could prove to be deadly for them. Do I worry for them, or do I keep my eye on the prize? Just what is the prize? Rhetorical question, I know. Finding myself asking more and more of them lately. Like, why did the landscape we were driving through seem so much like where we'd come from? Between the Green River and White River... There were more creeks and ponds than I could keep track of, which led Wallace to wonder if the presence of the Dagon had anything to do with it. The kid knew her Lovecraft. I was afraid to ask if that was a rhetorical question, largely because I was beginning to wonder if anything Lovecraft wrote was meant to be taken rhetorically, or even metaphorically. But the question that came up when we turned onto the driveway of the old Victorian house just outside of Buckley wasn't rhetorical. The house was identical to the house in Eureka, right down to the carriage house with the apartment above it. And standing in front of the carriage house door was Jared's ghost, looking just as pissed off as he had at the top of the stairs at the house of Fantod's. He was still holding that gun, looking past us, at the car that was approaching the driveway from the road that brought us here. Turning to look out the back window of the bus, I caught a glimpse of the gray Sebring I knew all too well. But it had stopped moving just as it turned, the view blocked by a massive rhododendron. Why did this all seem so familiar? And who was that in the shadow of the rhododendron, watching? Was that the tall man? My blood chilled at a familiar sound, one I'd heard in a dream. The Dagon was tenderizing her prey. If my hunch is correct... Agents one and two have gone the same way as Shell and Rick in the dream where I first saw Simone's face. I turned to see her in the same seat on the bus, filming what she could through the window. A dragonfly danced in an unknowable wind just outside the window, darting to the carriage house door and back. Not once, twice, and then a third time. And with that, it opened to reveal yet another sight I recognized from a dream. It was the Bentley from the Paris dream. License plate G, S, 8, 8, and 11.